Amen. Thanks, Joshua. My name is also Josh. Um, and if you've been around for a while, you would know that at one point in our church's history, um, that I think half of the guys in the church were named Josh. And so a handful of years ago, we sent a couple of them out uh, to help with another church plant to try to get our numbers down. And uh, but clearly, we still struggle with some of the same challenges. Um, so, um, real quick, I know a lot of kids probably just left the room, and sometimes it's hard to see up here. Uh, but just a reminder, we do have um, kids' classrooms in the back, uh, if you're new and you don't know that. Um, we also have a couple of rooms over here on the side uh, in the lobby if uh, your kids are feeling a little too loud or rowdy, uh, or if you as an adult just feel like you're getting a little bit out of hand, uh, you can take a step back um, into the lobby as well. I believe uh, we might also have uh, the audio or even the video of the um, message here uh, in one of those rooms. So, All right, let's get started. Um, As I drove in this morning, I only live about five minutes away, but um, I, I put Spotify on uh, and just went to a playlist that I've been listening to lately and just hit shuffle. Uh, and the first song that came on, um, I can't believe I didn't think of this song before uh, this morning, uh, but the song was just so good. Um, it's called Lord from Sorrows Deep, I believe is what it's called. If I can find my notes. And the main refrain in that song is, Oh my soul, put your hope in God. My help, my rock, I will praise him. Sing, oh sing, through the raging storm. You are still my God, my salvation. And that's where we are today. That's where we're going today. That's the theme of today as we kick off this um, first Sunday in Advent. I chose to jump into 1 Peter, verses 1 to 13, as, as Joshua read. Um, and I think we're going to stick primarily to verses 3 to 7 in the message today, but I wanted to, to show you the before and after as well as we, as we get into the text today. The whole spirit or the tone of the letter of 1 Peter is hope. Now, Martin Luther thought that 1 Peter contained all that was necessary for a Christian to know in order to be a faithful believer. So to help us with some context and color for this passage today, John Calvin said this about 1 Peter. The design of Peter in this epistle is to exhort the faithful to a denial of the world and a contempt of it, so that being freed from carnal affections and all earthly hindrances, 
they might with their whole soul aspire after the celestial kingdom of Christ, that being elevated by hope, supported by patience, and fortified by courage and perseverance, they might overcome all kinds of temptations and pursue this course and practice throughout life. Hence, at the very beginning, he proclaims in express words the grace of God made known to us in Christ. And at the same time, he adds that it is received by faith and possessed by hope so that the godly might raise their minds, raise up their minds and hearts above the world. Let's read verses three to seven again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ask for God's help with me. Holy Spirit, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. Amen. Hope is one of the most defining concepts in the way that we live our lives. So let's organize this message today in the following. The beginning of hope the means of hope, the test of hope, and the end of hope. And I'm a, I'm a bad Baptist because I could not come up with a way to, to, to make a nice acronym out of that. BMTE, I don't know what that means. But the beginning of hope, God and his mercy. So before we skip right over it, it's easy to do this when we read the Bible or when we listen to it read. And just like we often do in community group discussions, let's ask the text, who is God? So just a few observations here. If you have your Bibles open to verse 3. Verse 3 says that God ought to be blessed or glorified, honored, or deserving of praise. Verse 3 says that God is Father, and that God is revealed in and through his son Jesus. Verse 3 also says that God is the one who possesses mercy. And not just ordinary, normal, average, plain mercy, but great mercy. Verse 3 also says that God at a very minimum acted through the resurrection of Jesus. It says that he caused the new birth. It says in verse 4 that he has the power to guard your and my faith. Verse 4 says that God has the power to keep an incredible, valuable, wealthy inheritance that cannot go away. Verse 4 says that God is incredibly wealthy now and forever. 
Verse 2, if we back up just a, a, a minute, God knew the future that you and I now live in, and he knows the future thousands of years beyond us. Verse 5 says that God is involved and heavily invested in our salvation. Now we'll just pause there. There's a lot more that we could say. But I'll let you do some of that on your own. What I want us to see here is that it all starts with God and even that it all ends with God. We even see the Trinity in these first 13 verses with the Spirit of Christ in verse 11 being spoken of as the one who guided Old Testament writings and then referred to as the Holy Spirit in verse 12 when speaking about the message, how the message of the gospel comes to us. Our God, this God, is full of mercy. This whole thing about being born again and finding a living hope and realizing the most valuable inheritance ever and Jesus rising from the dead, it's all about mercy. Someone once said that mercy is the first cause of our new birth. Before we can even talk about Christian hope, we must grasp this mercy. Titus chapter 3 has a lot of similarities to our first Peter text today. So let's read Titus 3 verses 3 to 7 as well. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we just read in 1 Peter? Both passages say something like, according to the mercy of God. Because the gospel of God is that we were foolish, we were disobedient, we hate, and we live according to our own passions and not God's. But God, in His goodness, His loving kindness... Or in Ephesians 2, also a pretty similar passage, it says that we were dead in our sins, following the ways of the world, following the devil. We were by nature children of wrath, enemies of God. I remember when Jen and I, a long time ago, were teaching kids at our church in, in Seattle and I just remember saying something like these words, that we were enemies of God. And to me, it was just common to, to, to have that kind of language and understanding at the time. But there was one kid who just stopped everything and just like, enemies of God? And I had to pause for a second because 
I, I was just used to talking that way, and I said, yeah, we were, but when we are born again, we are no longer enemies of God. We become his friends. We go from darkness to light. We become the people of God, and that's why his mercy is so incredible. As Pastor Tony Marita said, being the people of God is not something to boast in, but it's something to be in wonder and amazement about because it's a privilege and it is only by the mercy of God. It's not because God saw something in us or in response to something that we have done. So here today, we see that God is the actor. He is the initiator. In his mercy, he has done a good work and he is deserving of all praise. Let's move to the second point, the means of hope. Resurrection and regeneration. This is how we have Christian hope. This message is supposed to be about hope. This first Sunday in Advent is supposed to be about hope. But as I dug into this passage, I realized this message is going to be just as much about regeneration, just as much about being born again as it is about hope. And it's because hope does not stand on its own. We've already seen in 1 Peter, Titus, and Ephesians that in God's mercy, he causes us to be born again. He makes us alive. He saves us by the washing of regeneration. So how can we understand the living hope without the new birth which produces it? Regeneration, which is another word for the new birth or being born again, happens through, as the text says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Before we look at the experience of the new birth, we have to understand that it has no meaning, no significance, no reality, apart from the resurrection of Christ. That is why our hope is living, because our God is not dead. Our Savior is alive. The tomb is empty. The physical and historical resurrection of Jesus, God in human flesh that we celebrate at Christmas, gives real and lasting power and significance in the reality of our salvation, our faith, and our hope. This word regeneration might be new to some of you, but we get it from the, the way the Bible talks about being born again. And we are not just renewed or refreshed, but we are inherently changed. It's like our DNA has been altered or rewritten. Regeneration is to be made new, to be made again, to be made alive. John Piper wrote a whole book called Finally Alive on the Regeneration. And I can't remember where I got this description, but when I think about it, it to me, it's, it's also like a renovation of the heart. We just finished a kitchen remodel, which took way too long. Um, and so now I feel like I have the, mostly the full experience of what that's like. 
But regeneration is, is like a renovation of the heart. You rip everything out and you put new materials. You have a new experience in that space. Without God, we have no hope because only he brings about new life. Without God, we have no hope because we were slaves to sin. We were enemies to God. But with God, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have been brought close to God and the enmity or the hatred between God and us is gone. The resurrection of Christ is the means through which the new birth and the living hope is accomplished. So how do you know that you've been born again? Well, how do you know that you've been born? You live it. You're alive. Being born again is to be awakened to joy, beauty, to a whole new world. Tim Keller said that being born again means that you sense the true and deep realities of things that you just could not see before. He described it in, in, a, in a way, it's like your emotional maturity is, is more greatly realized because you see, you feel more broadly, you feel more deeply. Joy grows because it doesn't mean, but it doesn't mean the absence of sorrow. Rather, rather our sorrow drives us deeper into our greatest joy. Anyone else like the Inside Out movie? It's probably pretty old now, but there's another one coming in about six months. In that movie, you have, have the character joy and the character sadness, and they just don't, they don't understand each other, and they don't feel like they can work together. And being born again does not mean that sadness is just gone and we just have joy. It means that we will be more happy and sad on this earth than we were before. It means that the heart is always big and full. It's a more real experience. It's a product of living hope. And the happier you are in your true hope enables you to even be involved in the suffering and sadness of others' lives. In my mind, regeneration is kind of like seeing a picture of Zion National Park on a postcard. Maybe it's an old postcard, a little blurry, bad picture, and you've never been there. You don't know anybody who's ever been there just doesn't hold a lot of significance to you. But then one day, you enter Zion from the east entrance of the park, and all of a sudden, it's just like fireworks of majestic, massive cliffs just straight up confronting you. And then you drive in and, and park, and then you go and climb Angel's Landing, and if you don't die, you make it to the top of Angel's Landing, and you get to the top, and you just make a 360 turn right at the top there. And you just take in the incredible majesty that's all around you. Regeneration makes you alive. You have new affections, new desires, 
Spiritually, it's a work of God by his spirit to penetrate your heart. And as the Bible says, it's to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This happens when we hear or when we read the word of God, the good news of the gospel. That's why we want to treasure moments like this. Because this is a special moment where we can be reminded or hear the good news of the gospel for the first time. God graciously takes this word of the gospel, which he says possesses spiritual power, and he uses it and he enters our life and he changes us. That's why it's our job, like when, we, when we're speaking up here, it's, it's simply our job to make the gospel clear and to present it in a way that's genuine and attractive. When God uses this word and makes you born again, you see differently, you value differently, you interpret life differently, and you will end up living differently. I remember growing up with the gospel, both in my house and in my church and in my Bible. And I think it was probably when I was about 12 years old, I remember coming to the conclusion that this Jesus stuff, you know, I think it's real. I think it's true but I didn't want it. In my mature 12-year-old wisdom, because I wanted to determine the way to live my life, I became determined that I'm going to wait until I know I'm dying or until I'm 85 or whenever, whenever I feel old enough. I'll accept Jesus then. But one day... That compartmentalization of God in my life all of a sudden became real to me. And I just found myself privately with my Bible weeping because I now believed and felt that I was a sinner. I was an enemy of God. And I not only needed Jesus as my only hope, but for whatever reason, I now desired him. And I gave my life to him. The heart of stone was turned into a heart of flesh. Recently, Jen and I were sharing stories of faith and conversion with some friends, and what's clear to me from those conversations and from many, many others that I've had over the years is that we may not know exactly when regeneration occurs in us. It may even seem gradual to some, or it may seem like there's several pivotal points in life that play a significant role in coming to genuine faith. But what's helpful for us to remember, if we can, is what life prior to genuine faith was like. The heart that did not want God. The heart that did not want his salvation, that did not want to submit to him. In contrast to the heart and the mind that we experience now, which only comes after being made new. There are lots of conversion stories that we could share, but I recently read this about Jonathan Edwards' understanding of the new birth. He was a pastor during uh, what we would call some revivals back in the, uh, the 1700s. And he calls this new birth, he gives it a term, divine enlightenment, or God's work in our hearts. I think we might have this on the screen as well. It effectually influences the inclination and changes the nature of the soul. It assimilates our nature 
to the divine nature. It will turn the heart to God as the fountain of good and, cho- and to choose him for the only portion. It conforms the heart to the gospel, mortifies its enmity and opposition against the scheme of salvation. It causes the heart to embrace the revelation of Christ as our Savior. It causes the whole soul to accord and symphonize with it, cleaving to it with full inclination and affection. It shows God as worthy to be obeyed and served. It draws forth the heart in a sincere love of God, and it convinces of the reality of those glorious rewards that God has promised to them that obey him. I remember taking a class during college on the Book of Mormon. And at one point, we were talking about being born again. But it was not the same as what we're saying here today. Being born again in that class was referred to as something that could happen over and over and over again, which surprised me. It was, it was spoken of as something as like a, like a temporary renewal, being refreshed. But not with the significance that I want to communicate here today based on what I think the Bible says. And while your experience might not be able to definitively point to a moment in time when you were born again, the Bible speaks about being born again as something that happens once and you are forever altered, as Edwards made clear. It's significant and powerful and forever and future altering. Hope does not stand on its own. Hope stands upon the great reality of regeneration. It doesn't mean that you all of a sudden go from total, obedient, total disobedience to total obedience. It comes in time. It's not something where you have to get parts of your life figured out first. You've got to pull yourself together a little bit. It happens through faith. And your life changes over time. I think I quoted Tony Marita earlier, but here's another thing he said. Regeneration does not perfect us, but it does change us. It does change us thoroughly. We are not asking you to clean up your life or to turn a new leaf. Let's move from regeneration to faith, the test of hope. Who's your favorite player on the Kansas City Chiefs? Well, one Insta reel recently of a little girl who discovered her new love for football. Uh, I saw this a few weeks ago, and her mom asked her who her favorite player was, and she clearly chose Taylor Swift. (laughs) And if you didn't know that T. Swift was playing football, Well, she's not, but she is supposedly dating a player on the Chiefs team. And we can't get through a single week of the NFL season now without Swift showing up somewhere in the key storylines. The reality so far this season, and I think I have this right, um, is that the the Chiefs win whenever she decides to show up to their game. And... Maybe that's what the Chiefs need this year. I don't know. Um, But isn't that kind of a 
petty or, or true example of how fleeting, how shaky our worldly hope and confidence can be. It's like, I just hope Taylor Swift's going to be at the game today because then they're going to win. John Calvin said that 1 Peter 1 has an implied contrast between the hope fixed on the incorruptible kingdom of God, that contrast to the fading and transient hopes of man. Do you sense yet the massive difference between what we often think of as hope today and how the Bible speaks about it? They're just in, they're incredibly different realities. What you will give your life to will look very different depending on your hope. Part of what we see here today is that the work of God is making us born again, that it is inseparable from genuine, true faith. This whole section in verses three to five that we read is, is one sentence and everything goes together. God's mercy, God's regener- or our regeneration, living hope, Christ's resurrection, final inheritance or salvation, and faith. It all goes together, and you don't get one without the other. Jürgen Moltmann was a German theologian. When he was 16 years old, he was drafted into the Nazi army, and he struggled with that. And when he was sent to the front lines, he immediately surrendered to the first British soldier that he saw. He ended up being a POW for several years. But in that camp, that's when he discovered the New Testament and a group of Christians. And it was there that he said, that's not where he found Christ, but where it's where Christ found him. He said this about saving faith, which is maybe even more of a statement about regeneration. Christian faith isn't just a conviction. It's not just a feeling and a decision. It invades the life so deeply that we have to talk about being born again, which is what corresponds to the death and resurrection of Christ. The experience of the Holy Spirit makes Christ's resurrection present, and this awakens a living hope for God's future. The moment of rebirth is the moment in which eternity touches time and puts an end to its transience. A truly new life begins only when this happens. We read here of Christian faith put in the context of various trials. It is the genuineness of this faith that is tested in the fire of difficulty, such as the threat and experience of persecution. Although this text speaks generally of trials as though they could really be anything. What kind of trials would your faith emerge from? Would your faith be purified? It doesn't have to be perfect. Remember, Peter had faith, and then he denied Jesus in the most important moment. But faith does need to continue. It does need to last, and by doing so, it gets purified like gold in the fire. Some of you have faced great harm and others have had a relatively easy life in comparison. And I keep telling my kids, but I I keep telling them that they're they're fortunate and they, they have a good life, but they'll figure it out someday. 
But despite all of our efforts to build comfortable lives, don't we still experience death, disease, heartbreak, hatred, cruelty, persecution in some ways? Would your faith emerge genuine at the end of all of your trials? We should view our trials in light of eternity. And this text provides an incredible comfort in verse 5. It says that if you are born again, if you believe in this Christ, if you have been a recipient of the great mercy of God, your faith is being guarded by God's power. How else could we say the beginning of verse 6 that we rejoice amidst trial? The only way that we could express joy in the midst of difficulty is if God is protecting us in our faith. He will ensure that we will make it to the end. And that brings us to our final point, the end of hope, inheritance, and salvation. What is the end of hope? Not the end as in when does it go away, but what is its ultimate purpose or what does this Christian hope have as its goal? It was somewhat difficult for me to land on a text of scripture to speak on hope. One of the finalists in my mind for this message was going to be Romans 15, 13 which was referenced uh, by one of, the, one of the musicians at Night of Thanks last week. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And that, that pastor at uh, Night of Thanks, he said something like, um, we should be brokers and dealers of hope. We abound in hope so much. And from this text, again, we see that there's a connection between hope and faith. There's a connection between the work of God in us through all of it. But what I did not realize right away is that in this verse in Romans comes right in the middle of Paul explaining how the promises of God, excuse me, the promises of God given to Israel and all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that God's eternal plan was to work through Israel to bring salvation to both Israel and to the Gentiles, or in other words, all nations and peoples. Most, if not all of us hearing this word today, are recipients of God's grace as members of the so-called Gentile community. It's difficult to feel the significance of this fact here in Utah in the 21st century, but we would sense it a lot more, I think, if we were living in the Middle East right now. And as we continue to hear updates about the war in Gaza, we must keep the bigger picture of God's eternal plan in mind. And it is not simply or solely for a piece of land and as Piper, John Piper said, the coming of Jesus was yes to Israel, and it was yes to the world. Just as in this chapter we read of people redeemed in Pontius 
Galatia and Asia. The promises of God is for this Christ to redeem people from every tribe and nation, which includes the people in Israel, includes the people in Gaza, the people in Iran, the people in Lebanon, the people in Saudi Arabia, the people in Turkey and Syria and Iraq and Qatar and the UAE and Egypt and Pakistan and Afghanistan and Kyrgyzstan and Utah. So let us pray and work to that end. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a recent interest in movies and documentaries about the creation of the atomic bomb and how some Americans leaked information on on that project to Stalin and the Russians. And in all the work and stress to make that bomb, to beat the Nazis and making it first, in all the efforts to protect that incredible sensitive information, the cumulative and collective hope was either to possess earthly power over all other countries, or it was to bring about a truce of sorts or a fragile world peace. Because if multiple countries had the bomb, then surely no one would actually use it. It's such a temporary, fragile hope, is it not? In contrast, Dietrich Bonhoeffer Some of you know his name. Before he was executed by the Nazis near the end of World War II, he told his cellmate when his name was finally called out to the execution, just months before the war ended, he said about his own life, he said, this is the end, but for me, this is the beginning of life. How could he have such faith And really, how could he possess such hope? It could only be because of his deep confidence in the resurrection of Christ. And that because Jesus lives, his hope was a living hope that God would fulfill his promises of the inheritance that cannot perish, that is perfectly pure, and that never fades away. This inheritance is a gift. Usually we don't earn an inheritance. It's usually based on whoever that father or mother or grandparent is and the success that they've found, that they've produced, and ultimately how generous they are to you. This inheritance in 1 Peter is eternal life. It is the outcome of our faith It is the salvation of our souls. It is the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus returns to earth again. At the same time, even though it's a gift, as verse 7 says, having this living hope and keeping our faith to the end results in the approval of the King of Kings. It results in praise and honor and glory from God. And uh, band and prayer team, feel free to, to come forward. Any point here? As Peter, through the Holy Spirit, said in verse 13, 
Verse 13 says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us set our hope fully on this reality. So as we close today, will you follow the fragile cultural currents of today's hope? Or will you make your gaze so focused on Jesus that you can say in your final days, like Jonathan Edwards did in 1753 in his final will before he died, said this, first of all, I give and commend my soul into the hands of God that gave it. And to the Lord Jesus Christ, its glorious, all-sufficient, faithful, and chosen Redeemer, relying alone on the free and infinite mercy and grace of God through his worthiness and mediation for its eternal salvation. In my body, I commend to the earth to be committed to the dust and decent Christian burial at the discretion of my executrix. I don't know how to say that word. Here named. Hoping through the grace, faithfulness, and almighty power of my everlasting Redeemer to receive the same again at the last day made like unto his glorious body. So let us end with the words of a song that I hope that we can sing one day here at Church of the Valley. Uh, Austin Stone, if you don't listen to them yet, you probably should. It'll feed your soul. But they wrote a song called Hope is Awake. At dawn, the earth began to shake as heaven longed for hope to wake. With holy breath, the king of light tore through the darkness of the night. The stone revealed an empty grave, raised up to life the highest name, ascended to the Father's throne, our Jesus Christ, the risen one. All glory to the risen Lamb of God, all honor to the risen Lamb of God, all power to the risen Lamb of God, all glory to the risen Lamb of God. This is our hope. Hallelujah.